Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson, and for more than 10 years, I've overseen our patient safety, risk, and quality membership programs here at ECRI. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. Today's episode is part of a series we're recording for the ECRI and the ISMP Patient Safety Organization's Deep Dive Report. This year's Deep Dive focuses on issues of racial and ethnic disparities in care, and we're talking to PSO members and others to hear about their initiatives to fight against these disparities. Our guest today is from ValleyWise Health's Refugee Women's Health Clinic, located in Maricopa County, the area around Phoenix, Arizona, which has served more than 9,000 refugees from more than 60 countries since 2008. The Refugee Women's Health Clinic has a long established infrastructure of community partnership, engagement, and shared community leadership that through collaboration, facilitate and coordinate culturally competent care, services, and support. So to get us started, I'll ask our guest to introduce herself. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm happy to be here. Um, my name is Dr. Krista johnson Egbapu. I am an obstetrician gynecologist and the founding director of the Refugee Women's Health Clinic at Valley Wise Health. I also have an academic appointment at Arizona State University in the Southwest Interdisciplinary Research Center. And basically, my work is seamlessly integrated between clinical care, health services research, which are both embedded within the community um, and it forms kind of like a trifecta in terms of really advancing health equity for vulnerable populations, namely the large and growing uh, refugee population here in Arizona. And I'd probably add one other part is that we also are very much um, embedded in teaching and training the next generation of clinicians and scholars. And Valleywise Health is the largest public safety net and public teaching hospital in the state of Arizona. So that's also a very important um, framework for the work that we do. Let, let's talk a little bit about more about that framework. So I mentioned, um, you know, that you're you're in Maricopa County, which I guess includes Phoenix and is also the area around Phoenix. I have that right? Exactly. Yes. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the refugee community that you serve? Sure. And in particular, you know, for today's conversation, what are some of those barriers that we see to health equity? Absolutely. So many may not be aware that Arizona has a longstanding history of refugee resettlements dating back to 1975. And so we have resettled upwards of 82,000 uh, refugee new arrivals. These are uh, migrants whose first foot in the United States is in the state of Arizona. And of course, that doesn't necessarily reflect secondary migration to and from other states. Um, but yes, we've consistently ranked in the top 10 US states. In fact, our peak was back in 2016 when we resettled upwards of 5,000 new arrivals. And we're anticipating with the current refugee admissions cap established by Congress and the Biden administration, um, if the United States agrees to uh, resettle 125,000 new arrivals, Arizona is designated to get anywhere between seven to 9,000 new arrivals, which is quite substantial and the highest that we've ever received in history. And so clearly we are at the front 
lines of really serving an emergent need of a very vulnerable population that have survived human rights atrocities and war and conflict and are establishing their lives here in the state. And at ValleyWise Health, we've addressed that head on for the past 13 years. We were founded in 2008 and we have become a best practice model, not only for the state, but for the nation in terms of looking at unique ways that we have sought to address health equity and really build very strong and deep partnerships with our various refugee community stakeholders. You know, one of the things that I think has really come out, not only in, in learning about ValleyWise, but learning about a lot of different organizations that work in a lot of different spaces around the country is it's never just about literal clinical health care. Right, that's a piece of it, but it also involves a lot of community education, community engagement, involvement. Um, can you describe some of that sort of community education and involvement that the Refugee Women's Clinic uh, is, is, you know, involved in and leads? Absolutely. So one of the first things we put in place when we started this clinic was developing a community advisory coalition. The actual formal name is the Refugee Women's Health Community Advisory Coalition. It is a coalition that is comprised of over 60 stakeholders that are all serving the refugee community in various ways. For instance, we have close partnership with the public health departments, the state refugee resettlement program office, area resettlement agencies, such as Catholic Charities and IRC, which is the International Rescue Committee. We have very close partnership with ethnic community-based organizations that reflect the various refugee communities that we are serving. And just to give the audience an example, you know, we have served since we started um, populations from across Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. Our largest populations arriving now are coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo, from Iraq, from Burma or Myanmar, uh, from Somalia. Um, and now with the recent Afghanistan evacuation, we are slated to receive in the coming months upwards anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 new Afghan arrivals as well. And we're preparing for that surge. And so, as you rightly state, beyond just clinical care, we really need to nurture very strong um, engagement with the community. And through our coalition, we've been able to do that. And because we've been in place for over 13 years now, we have very strong deep and trusted roots um, within and across our community. And that is so critical when we think about, especially in the era that we've been in and continue to be in with this pandemic, trust is absolutely critical. And so we've been able to nurture and sustain trust as we seek to um, build the capacity of our communities to be responsive to the emerging needs of a very highly vulnerable population. In addition to our coalition, uh, the other most critical aspect of what we've done from the very beginning is that we have built in and integrated what we call cultural health navigators. It's pretty similar to what we are mo more familiar with, like the Promotora model or community health workers more broadly. Um, it's very similar to that. But what's unique is that these are women and men who are trusted leaders within their respective community. They are certified medical interpreters. They speak upwards of 18 languages. And you, some individuals themselves speak six to eight lang languages individually, um, much less you know, across our entire team of men and women. And they um, have that cultural knowledge. They have that shared lived experience of forced displacement. They themselves are migrants coming from the same exact regions of the world that we also serve, you know, from which our patients are from. And so that is tremendous because that 
builds a critical bridge linking our communities, our families and children and our patients directly to our health services. And so honestly, when I talk about all the work that we do, it would not be possible without this team. They are able to bridge that critical gap, enhance literacy, um, facilitate care coordination and case management, and really um, um, fill that gap in terms of meeting the needs of the patients wherever they might be in a safe way, creating a safe space, a trusted safe space, and really um, helping to facilitate um, care navigation that optimizes their health outcomes. And that's something that we have been doing for many years, but only recently we've begun to really track some of those outcomes. And we've really seen the profound impact this has had on improving quality outcomes for women. Um, and I must also add that because we have started with women's health care, we have grown since then because we've delivered well over 2,000 newborn babies. We, knew, we know that refugee families escaping conflict also come um, with their family, with children. And so the pediatric refugee clinic has exploded um, with children who are also receiving services um, in addition to uh, serving the extended family, including men. And this has all been directly connected to our coalition. Our community have been at the forefront and at the table helping to drive our priorities. When we realized that we were not serving men adequately, we learned that from the, our community partners. They said, you're doing an excellent job serving women and children, but what about men? You know, we're left out, we need care too. And so that's a perfect example of how we have leaned in and leaned on that critical voice from the community to help drive and prioritize where we should be focusing our efforts. And as we now look at this Afghan um, concern regarding the very large number of evacuees, we are doing the same exact thing, really leaning in to our community network and our partners to help us uh, better um, uh, coalesce our care operations and our communications to really prioritize the needs of this uh, very vulnerable population that's now arriving on our, at our doorstep. And um, uh, what, what is so critical is the fact that we anchor this in um, really educating the community, communi uh, communicating effectively and, and using innovative strategies, especially given this COVID pandemic that we might not necessarily be able to go door to door knocking you know, uh, on, on doors in the, in the neighborhoods as we did before the pandemic, but we're, we're heavily relying on uh, other forms of messaging, leaning in on social media and other elements to really make sure that we are communicating effectively with our community, with our patients and their families and most importantly, enhancing their health literacy too. Mm. So let's pull on that thread a little bit because I think this is all related. One of the things that always really interests me is this combination of um, the sort of uh, the, the, the individual community relationships and the, the voice of the, of the people in the community sort of married with data, right? Mm. Because we Absolutely. can look at that sort of big picture and, and hear the anecdotal, which can point us to big picture that we want to, to pull on a little bit. Um, so, I mean, just as you were listing off the different countries, you know, where you're, where you have families and, and individuals from, right. You've got Africa, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, you've got all over the, uh, all over the globe. Um, what kinds of data are you then gathering about your community, about your outcomes of uh, whatever the situation is that then marries with, as I said, that sort of individual and, and group outreach to sort of help shape where you're going to turn next. Sure. 
So I could probably give you two separate examples of that. One related to how we are advancing health equity around women's health and the other very timely related to um, this pandemic. So um, let's see, let me start with how we've advanced health equity. So over the past few years, over for many years now, we have very strong um, partnerships with Mercy Care which is a Medicaid health plan that ensures the lion's share of our patient population. And it so happened that over the years, Mercy Care has delved into looking at their claims data and examined you know, how they were doing across all of the claimants that they insure. And they found some unique trends that were happening in the refugee population at Valleywise and that, hmm, when we look at this subgroup, somehow they're performing really well. You know, they're looking at data um, on birth outcomes, C-section rates, emergency um, room use, uh, hospital admission and readmission rates, um, quality metrics that are, that are followed very closely uh, nationally in terms of looking at um, maternal and child health outcomes. And so they noticed that we were actually doing better than the, their general pool of claimants. And so they thought to really examine this more closely. And um, they uh, put in place a pilot initiative uh, where they were setting aside some funds to fund our cultural health navigators specifically to help them um, um, hone in on the maternal um, child health initiatives that we were already embarking in, but we're, now we're able to formally track this very closely. And so with this pilot in place, we were able to actually demonstrate clearly improved outcomes uh, by looking over a specific designated time period. And we had some baseline data before the time period started so we can compare. And indeed, we found that in our patient population, we actually were showing improvement on many quality metrics relating to maternal um, child health in terms of birth outcomes, in terms of um, initiation of early prenatal care, in terms of um, hospital emergency room use, um, hospital readmission rates, we were clearly, uh, indeed, it was proven correct that we are uh, surely uh, have achieving um, quality outcomes that are far better than um, the general population and even compared to our own baseline metrics. And this has resulted in several thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in cost savings. And so this is really radicalizing how we think about maternity care financing, especially with this pandemic, there's been heightened attention to innovative um, methods of improving quality care um, and reducing costs, especially in vulnerable populations disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And so that's a one perfect example of where we have excelled tremendously and we are indeed a model for replication um, in other fields like pediatrics and family medicine, potentially across other Medicaid health plans. You know, value-based care is getting a tremendous attention these days in terms of how we can truly achieve um, improved um, health equity for particularly high-risk populations. The other example I wanted to give you that directly used data to, 
completely transform our public health response is how we responded to this COVID-19 pandemic. And so, you know, we are a public safety net hospital. And you know, that being said, we disproportionately serve uh, vulnerable populations, migrants, um, underinsured, uninsured patients. And so when you think about the impact of COVID-19 and its disproportionate burden on um, vulnerable populations, we are, you know, we are the poster child of that, so to speak. But that is an, also an opportunity for us to really showcase the tremendous work that we're doing. And so in the early months of the pandemic, when we saw that Arizona was being hit very hard with high rates of COVID-19 infection, we were one of the first hospitals to put in place universal mask wearing, you know, and I attribute that to the leadership of Dr. Michael White to uh, that really put us in the front uh, line and really um, addressing how we as a health system were responding to this crisis. And what we were able to do is on our labor and delivery unit, we instituted universal testing immediately on our labor and delivery unit. No other hospital was doing that at that time. And instantly, within the first few weeks, we saw that we clearly had a problem on our hands because just in a few weeks of testing, we found that there was a disproportionate burden of, uh, affecting our refugee population. We recently published that in the past year. Essentially, um, the the discrepancy was 27% of refugees were testing positive compared to only 3% of our general population. And when you look over the entire course of the, the few months of, of what we were capturing this data, it maintained um, that, that disparity maintained um, was substantial and that it was approximately close to 18% of our refugees uh, were positive compared to about 8% of our general population. And we know because this is a vulnerable uh, population we're serving anyway, uh, we found that when we did antibody testing that the general prevalence of those who actually just had COVID antibodies was around 34%. So you can see wow. the kind of population that we're working with. But you know, we were the canary in the coal mine because when we took that data, we took that live emerging data and directly um, notified our public health colleagues at Maricopa County Department of Public Health. We said, hey, we have a crisis. We clearly see in these initial weeks that clearly the burden is substantial for um, our refugee populations and what can we do to address that? So that's how we directly use data to really inform public health outreach because they were then able to form at the county level a COVID-19 refugee outreach unit uh, mm -hmm. where they realized that they needed to put boots on the ground uh, using our similar model of cultural health navigators, they were able to uh, hire a team. They hired five community health navigators, they, they termed the phrase, to basically be boots on the ground to really get into these neighborhoods and really target these neighborhoods to make sure that they were advancing public health information and outreach to make sure that they were addressing some of the issues with inability to social distance because they're living in cramped multi-generational households, often refugee families of nine were crammed into a two-bedroom apartment, things like that. And as you can imagine, those are opportunity for serious community spread. And of course, we know in the refugee community, there are serious communication and language barriers, limited health literacy, limited computer literacy. Remember in the days of, um, even with the vaccine rollout, you needed to register 
to then get to a pod to get vaccinated. And that's a non a non-starter when you don't even read in English nor know how to navigate a computer. <laughs> so you can just imagine contact tracing efforts, you know, were initially just in English and Spanish. So how do you do this in Arabic and Swahili and Burmese, right? And so that's why it was so critical that we take a tailored approach to making sure that we are communicating effectively using trusted community members to really advance COVID-19 mitigation efforts. And um, that has been tremendous in terms of us using data to drive public health outreach and education in, in the very targeted uh, vulnerable communities. Um, another thing that we did as part of that effort was to develop educational videos on our team, our pediatric colleague, Dr. Michael Doe was instrumental in really uh, coalescing our team of navigators who created videos in their respective languages across you know, close to 10, 11, 12 languages that are now available on YouTube. They've had well over 200,000 views we had three series focused on COVID information, how to remain safe, you know, social distancing, mask wearing. And finally, a third video series was just released specific to the vaccine and combating the misinformation around and, and that it's, you know, propagating vaccine hesitancy as we are all very familiar with, but we used our own team members talking about their own experience getting the vaccine and even having video footage showing them getting the vaccine and mm -hmm. that they are okay, you know, and, and how can we help to dispel some of those myths um, and provide fact, factful information to help promote vaccine acceptance in these communities. So those are just the two examples that I wanted to share that shows how we are directly using data to drive public health response and, and public health outreach. Um, and we need to do more of that um, to really make sure that we are targeting um, not only our clinical care, but our programmatic and community outreach and our research efforts that are tailored to the vulnerabilities specific to um, certain communities. It really re requires a tailored um, and individualized response. I like to term this as precision public health or precision population health. And that's kind of the area that I'm chartering with my research efforts. Well, and you know, what's really interesting to me is that it hits at that intersection of you described earlier health literacy, mm -hmm. right? I've got um, just literal, literal language barriers. I've got cultural competence issues. I've got sort of all these things balled into one. And, and right, so my background, right, I'm an editor. So I, I, my whole world is, is written in paper and paragraphs. And, and, and I am, you know, I am personally, um, how do I don't say this, right? I don't watch a lot of videos. If I can avoid it, I will read before I watch. But it strikes me that these videos you're describing, they are, sort of a great way to short circuit a lot of those challenges and get to, right, if I've, as you said earlier, right, I've got a native speaker who has shared life experiences, who can speak to a community, both in language that they will understand, but also in um, ex speaking experiences that they understand. And that, that seems like just a great way to to just do an end around all of the nonsense and, and get the information, the, as you said, fact-based information right in the hands of people in a way that they can receive it. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. No, that's a great, that's great. And as you said, a couple hundred thousand views, taking into account what you mentioned earlier, folks who maybe don't have reliable internet access, right? But we're, this, we can get the message to them if we Absolutely. put it out there in a consumable way. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. and. I think we are the perfect model of what should be 
um, done in other parts of the country and, and other populations, vulnerable populations, to really get at the core of, of what's driving um, a lot of the health inequities. And I think at the very core of this is really trust, trust and um, um, human empathy, cultural humility. You know, those are those are nuggets that are often thought of as soft or fluffy and and, and not nice necessarily you know exactly but this is absolutely critical yeah. to um, ensuring compliance with recommended treatment paradigms that might you might not be familiar with or might be scared of or you might not understand but if you have a trusted person who you identify with who might share your cultural or linguistic background or heritage or lived experience that you can relate to and they're saying, you know, this is how this can help you and distills that complex medical language in a way that is understood through the lens of culture and language and one's lived experience. I mean, you can, you can move mountains, you know? And I think the fact that we recognized that from the very beginning and nurtured that and built our entire system of operations around that foundational truth I think is what has set us apart from anyone else, you know, in terms of how we've been able to truly address that ever elusive uh, health equity in terms of really, uh, you know, improving care for entire populations. I want to talk about trust for a second. One, one of the other themes that I've heard in a lot of these conversations that I've had is the folks that have been really successful, especially with navigating COVID, are folks who have had you know, organizations built up in their communities over a decade, you said 13 years for, you know, for the Refugee Women's Health Clinic, other places are, you know, similar lengths of time. Um, we'll talk in a minute about sort of first steps. If I'm another organization starting from ground zero, you know, and I want to build up, but, but uh, you know, where, how does an organization maybe that doesn't have that deep community engagement today, but they know they need to get there? sort of how do they start to build up that trust to build up those those relationships because they know it's the key but they're starting from scratch mm -hmm. um you know this is at the core of uh, so much if we could figure this out right we would make such huge leaps and bounds in terms of advancing health equity for vulnerable populations i think honestly at where we should start and you know what you know, organizations should really think really carefully about is that representation matters you know often these communities are often communities of color um, and they have a history of historical um, human rights atrocities well whether you're looking at Native Americans whether you're looking at African Americans and the legacy of slavery whether you're looking at migrant populations who have been displaced due to war and conflict and have experienced gender-based violence and uh, systemic rape, for instance, as a weapon of war. You know, they've all experienced trauma, historical trauma, uh, which um, creates pervasive distrust. And so at the very core of, you know, how does an institution begin to build those relationships with these communities? Um, you really have to nurture trust. And part of that has to do with representation, making sure that when you look at your organization, look around who at the level of leadership reflects the communities you're trying to reach, who among research teams, among clinical care teams, among providers, 
who among them reflects the community you're trying to reach? And representation is absolutely critical to make sure that there's that authenticity, that commitment, that we're not just top down speaking to communities. We are making sure that they are part of our system of operations at every level, from the leadership all the way down to the, um, you know, the the healthcare worker working in, you know, you know, in in various mundane services across the health institution, and so you re that representation is absolutely critical because that brings important voice to how decisions are made that impact policy, that impact how care is delivered, how protocols are created. You know, being mindful of that voice, you need to have representation at the table where those decisions are being made that affect those communities. That is absolutely critical. And I think we need to land and sit on that for a minute because when you think about issues of implicit bias, and the fact that we are now finally, after you know, well overdue, paying attention to the role of structural racism as it shapes um, how we look at this, the disproportionate burden of health inequities on communities of color and how that's informed by social determinants of health of which structural racism is at the very foundation and core. You know, these are very hard conversations and topics that you know, create a lot of unease um, as we've seen over these recent years, but it's so critical for us to have and engage in those conversations because if we could really understand what's at the core, we would make such important um, gains in terms of how we are delivering programs and protocols and research um, paradigms that are informed by making sure that we have representation at the very table when those decisions are being made. Um, and part of that also has to be recognition by institutions that we need to do a better job in terms of training our workforce, our healthcare workforce, to be aware of the insidious nature of implicit bias and microaggressions that are part of the lived experience of living and breathing air in this country, because that's the historical legacy that we have and we cannot escape. But recognizing that and making sure that as we talk about health equity, and as we look at data, the ever importance of understanding data that we apply a racial equity lens to understand that as we look at our data, we're disaggregating it by race, by ethnicity, by language, by nativity. Those are things that often we stop at race and ethnicity and say, okay, we're done. But no, that's only part of it because when you think about refugees, refugees do not fall under those clear racial and ethnic categories of black, you know, non-Hispanic, right? Like, what do you do if a woman is from Somalia? She is not really the same as a native-born woman, black woman born in the United States, right? Because the, their journeys, their migratory journeys, their experiences are very different. But once they arrive in the United States, you might have now that they are under the umbrella as a person of color, they now experience the effects of racism and discrimination and um, religious hostility if they are Muslim, for instance, that now add up that weathering effect of chronic toxic stress that is now part of those social determinants of health that are impacting um, her experience with the family's experience, the next generation who are now no longer migrants, but they're now US born, but are as communities of color also experiencing the, the, the strain that, uh, you know, the embodiment of racism and lifelong stressors and discrimination have on one's health. And so I think 
you know, when, as we think about how health systems can move that dial forward, you have to make sure that at the very top, all the way down, you have representation uh, in leadership and, and, and health services and care delivery that re reflect the communities and are, that inform the way in which we de design the programs and the way we track the data to make sure that it is with a racial equity lens and how we train healthcare workers um, to be um, understanding of how implicit bias um, is really interwoven in everything that we do and being mindful of that so that we can catch it and be accountable to that in, in all that we do and how we train um, clinicians and how we engage in clinical trials, et cetera. So I think that would be the first big step <laughs> to making sure that as we put programs in place, it's done being very mindful of our relationship with our communities and how we need to reflect that in all the work that we do and how we design the work from the very beginning. You, you mentioned in the course of that, you know, talking about training, right, for our workforce. Um, but in our, you know, in our prior conversation before we were set up to record today, you also talked about the initial clinical education mm -hmm. of, of caregivers, nurses, physicians, mm -hmm. all sorts of all levels. So I wonder if you could um, maybe exp exp um, what if you could maybe sort of expand on that a little bit and, and sort of the relationship between that, you know, sort of formative clinical education, and then as it sort of morphs into, um, you know, now I'm a person in my career and need that ongoing mm -hmm. training and reminding. Absolutely. It's iterative. It's lifelong. I mean, we, you know, as a physician, you know, that's our mandate, you know, learning does not stop at the end of medical school right. or at the end of our residency. It's lifelong because as you know, medicine changes, you know, we learn more, there's a, you know, science increases. And so it's, a, it's imperative for us as we expand our knowledge, look how much we've learned about COVID-19 in the past 18 months. We never heard of this. This is a novel virus, <laughs> but look at how our knowledge has exponentially um, exploded in the past 18 months. Look at the thousands of research articles that have been published helping us understand and unpack the impact of COVID. The same diligence is needed when we look at health equity and we look at um, how we need to have an iterative framework in mind to think about, you know, as we evolve in our understanding and our knowledge of the impact of racism and social determinants of health on health equity for vulnerable populations, we need to continue expanding our understanding of how do we now use this knowledge to inform our approaches working with communities of color. And, and so it is absolutely iterative. In fact, as we think about just from the training standpoint, we must train the next generation of clinicians, of scholars, of nurses, of public health professionals we need to make sure that as part of that training, they're gaining these critical skills at the same time that they're also learning core medicine or core, core nursing or public health skills and knowledge. They have to also at the same time in parallel understand the impacts of social determinants of health or what is it, naming it and making sure that they are very much attentive to how that not only influence the care that they provide, but how they think about themselves as individuals within those spaces um, as they deliver care directly to patients and to communities. And so I, it is absolutely critical to make sure that we think about this as an iterative process. That's why, you know, you know, hospital 
um, um, bodies have required mandatory training. We all have to do mandatory trainings throughout the year on being prepared in case there's an active shooter. Understand, you know, if there's a fire, how to respond. These are trainings that we have that are also iterative. Mm -hmm. Every single year, I do the active shooter training because we see the, you know, gun violence is quite pervasive. The same way we treat these kinds of clear, you know, co competencies, we need to apply those same iterative competencies to how we think about health equity and how we think about implicit bias and think about our care delivery to vulnerable populations. So, you know, it is absolutely essential learning um, and iterative learning for all healthcare and public health workers in this space. So I think, I think that leads us really nicely to sort of where I wanna end up, which is um, the call to action that you published. Um, I have it here, this was sort of late 2020, November, 2020 that was published. And you, know, you talked about in the call to action, a, uh, a, a multi-pronged coordinated approach led by clinicians and public health professionals to proactively and systematically advance health equity for black Americans. So uh, obviously that's a, 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 to me, a very clear and very succinct call to, it is a call to action quite literally. Could you describe um, uh, maybe a little bit more detail what you had in mind in that call to action sure. and, and where you sort of see, um, if not next steps, uh, maybe that that's, uh, next steps is a little cliche, but sort of where you see sort of that call to action really taking, taking needing to take root. Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you so much for highlighting our, our, our team's uh, collaborative paper. And so we organized this around five key themes, and I could kind of highlight the five um, separately, but the five key themes was one, um, anti-racism, implicit bias, and cultural competency training. The second one was capacity building. The third, community-based participatory research engagement. The fourth, monitoring and evaluation. And the fifth, advocacy and empowerment. So these are all critical. Um, one cannot exist without the other. You know, they all have to be interwoven together and, 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 and part of that you know, comprehensive package in terms of how we can truly advance health equity. And so I'll start with the first one just to give some highlights. You've probably already heard me mention this already, but you know, the, the importance of cultural competency training cannot be overstated. You know, because it, it involves not just, you know, institutional policies, but I think I want to really hone in on the fact that the onus is on us. We need to uh, foster our own self-reflection to think about how we as individuals might be perpetuating, you know, stereotypes or just approaches to how we might think about populations um, that might not um, coincide with our worldview or our lived experience and really think about how we can, you know, take responsibility for um, how we might have our own biases and how that might influence the care that we deliver or even how we think about, you know, drafting policy and, and really making sure that it's more than our individual, you know, actions and the words coming out of our mouth, but also how can we advocate for the next person? When we, when we visualize and we witness this happening with other care interactions, are we proactive in calling that out? You know, so it's more than just our own cultural competency, but it's also active like anti-racism to be able to call out and recognize when this is happening in other spaces that we might witness and making and calling that into account as well. 
And how can we do this is by making sure, again, representation matters, that we bring people as part of our healthcare teams and our leadership teams that can help in driving that narrative and creating an inclusive environment, an environment of inclusive excellence where every member of the team is valued and respected. Um, and, and there are a lot of resources that have been developed by um, the AMA, the AMC, and other professional entities that can help institutions gain that um, competency um, and, are, and have um, resources to provide that training to their staff. The sec second part is capacity building. Um, and again, how can we nurture, say, pipeline programs? When you think about physicians of color, we are highly underrepresented. So we need to make sure that if we don't see that representation around us, how can we nurture and build that over time? And that's through supporting mentorship, pipeline programs, and proactively seek to make sure that we are seeking out to recruit uh, faculty, residents, students of color who can uh, you know, eventually um, grow into these positions um, of leadership and, and clinical care serving these communities. And we are not an island. We can work very closely with our community partners in helping to foster um, that workforce integration that builds in trusted members such as cultural health navigators as a perfect example of how they can be integrated into and as part of the fabric of our larger care team. So that's how we can also enhance the capacity within communities too, uh, working to very much address the very issues that communities face. And the third part is community-based participatory research. So that is the critical anchor that has been at the bedrock of all of the research that I have done at ASU. You know, everything that I engage in, whether it's quantitative surveys or focus groups or, or other types of research, it's really grounded in making sure that we are nurturing equitable partnerships with our community. And that, how do you define community? I mean, that's very broad. It depends on your subject and, and topic of focus. But you know, in my work, I have a community advisory coalition. I have you know, worked closely with ethnic community-based organizations, other community stakeholders serving the same population and make sure that they are at the table in terms of helping shaping not only research, but um, uh, how we think about clinical care. We have such a very close-knit partnership that we're coalescing around how we respond to the Afghan arrivals, you know, ev Afghan evacuees. It demands community-based engagement because, again, we are not an island. We are reliant on making sure that we are not missing any aspects of the, the multifocal, multi-pronged approach that is so critical to making sure that these populations can be firmly established here in this country and have a pathway to economic self-sufficiency and health and wellness. And the, third, uh, the fourth part is monitoring and evaluation. As I mentioned earlier, it's not enough to stop at just race and ethnicity in terms of how we disaggregate data. We need to make sure that the data that we're collecting has sufficient ethnocultural specificity so that we can make sure we understand that whether it's country of origin or length of time in the US or language spoken, these are other critical elements that are so key to helping us um, be more precise in terms of how we think about um, how we collect the data and analyze and interpret the meaning of that data. Um, and how can we follow um, these outcomes over time and develop quality metrics that are longitudinal to help us as we continue to be responsive to the, the, the needs of the population and make sure that we're putting in place 
proper measures that address quality care, the patient experience, for instance, and um, um, how we track morbidity and changes in outcomes specific to these very uh, um, specific um, high-risk populations. And lastly, and also very importantly, is continued advocacy and empowerment in terms of um, how do we not only nurture safe and inclusive environments for patients, but also how we can be really respectful of, um, um, of amplifying the community voice of making sure that we are inclusive of not just, um, uh, um, we're inclusive of um, representing gender, um, linguistic congruence, um, uh, cultural and racial congruence with our patients, um, how we can advocate and empower our patients to um, um, advocate for um, practices that will best support their, their health. And it might require innovative strategies. It might be something that hasn't been done before by the healthcare institution. Remember, we are dealing with populations that have limited health literacy. So could we think of audiovisual modalities or other ways that will empower communities that might not rely on just written flyers or written handouts that they cannot read because they haven't had the opportunity to go to school. So I think empowerment uh, goes beyond and, you know, elevating the patient's voice, but also looking at innovative strategies that will um, meet the needs of the community in ways that are novel, that might in, in harness other modalities that we have not traditionally used before, such as using social media or, or hosting town halls or, um, you know, looking at uh, other ways that policy can be informed by um, the, the, the data that we're collecting um, that is very specific for the unique um, populations that we are serving. Again, bringing in that code word of precision population health, precision, you know, public health, um, similar to precision medicine in, in genomic research. I think that is an important catchphrase that we need to start thinking about because that really involves how do we educate, empower, um, create inclusive environments that will address health, health equity, but in a unique way that specifically targets the most vulnerable populations in the ways that are, would be most effective to improving health outcomes um, through all of the various um, areas that I've mentioned. You know, we've been thinking in terms of COVID in the last 18 months, but obviously that's not been the only disruptor in that time. Mm -hmm. So what's been the effect of the ampli amplification during the same time of other social justice issues and, and how do they all interact? I mean, I guess the part of um, community embeddedness and advocacy should also consider social justice, um, yeah. you know, because I think that is something that the last 18 months, not only were we dealing with the COVID pandemic, we were also dealing with the um, heightened awareness of racism and its insidiousness and how that manifested with police, police brutality, how we now seeing that affecting women's reproductive rights, you know, with the recent abortion ban in Texas, you know, so there's also major threats to health equity that are affecting vulnerable populations and communities of color in ways that we are seeing that are profoundly impacting um, these communities' lives. And <clears throat> in addition to um, talking about how we can build capacity across institutions and being mindful of, uh, of, 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 of 
um, creating an environment that's inclusive, we also need to be very mindful of uh, making sure that institutions are considering social justice as so critical to the populations that they're tasked to serve. Because um, it's all interwoven and you cannot just pick and choose which topics you're going to say, okay, this one is good, I'll focus on this. You have to be holistic and think about all the different angles and ways in which communities uh, you know, live and breathe in this world. And, and we can't be myopic and only honing in on this clinical view where, you know, we have to fix their hemoglobin A1C, right? <laughs> because that can't be fixed if they are living in un unhealthy spaces and, are, and are, are, are dealing with stressors that profoundly impact their health and their ability to follow up for care or be compliant with treatment recommendations or be in the state of mind to focus on their health. You know, we have to have that holistic lens. And part of that holistic lens has to be a lens that considers racial equity, considers social justice, considers the social determinants of health, and considers, you know, language and cultural um, 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 congruence with care. So I just think we, we really need to, you know, elevate the work that we're doing by considering this 360 degree view on the human being, on the human person, and really make sure that we can consider our um, the cultural humility that's required to serve populations, especially populations that might not look like us or have our shared lived experience or worldview, and have that cultural humility, recognizing that we all um, have a shared humanity, you know, and humanizing medicine, humanizing public health and care, I think will really, you know, go a far way to improving health equity because we ultimately have you know, a, a global shared humanity and respecting each other as fellow human beings, I think, is at the very core of how we can really make critical advances in health equity for the most vulnerable among us. Dr. Johnson Agbaku, thank you for joining us today. Learn more about ECRI and the ISMP PSO from the ECRI website at www.ecri.org where you'll also find our 2021 Top 10 Patient Safety Concerns Report, which features racial and ethnic disparities in care as the top issue. You can find out more about ValleyWise Health's Refugee Women's Health Clinic at valleywisehealth.org. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes, and we welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org or email us at ecri-podcasts at equity.org.